If you take your Bible and let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 13, uh, we are engaged in a series of messages entitled um, Hosting the Spirit's Preview is that the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, and there are multiple reasons why that happens. And so we've been taking a journey through the book of Acts, and we noted that really the book of Acts can be sliced up uh, in different sections, and certainly the first section dealt primarily with the, the role of the Holy Spirit and right out of the gate how Jesus told his disciples that, look, this section really you dealt with you cannot do apart from the power done for us. And the, as the, uh, the next section really dealt with, accompanied with signs and wonders and miracles. And now in this third section, uh, we are dealing with the mission of the church. And so we have the Holy Spirit, we have the gospel, and so what is then is the mission of the church. We don't ever want to lose mind of what is the mission, what, what has God called us to do. And so I'm so thankful um, for these who have been baptized and to their parents and to all of you uh, who cheat, 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 teach in our children's department, okay? Man, you guys, uh, you're, you, are, you have been used by God. Because you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, have shared the gospel with these kids in multiple different ways until finally, you know, the, the Spirit has brought conviction and drawn them into that relationship. And they took that step of faith and they are here declaring uh, their public testimony because of the influence that you have had upon them. So uh, let's give everybody a round of applause for all that you do in our church. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, people used to think that the planet's the center of everything, and everything in our, our galaxy orbited around the Earth until a, uh, actually a physician who dabbled in astronomy, Nicholas Copernicus, came along and, and said that was not right. Uh, actually, uh, everything revolves around the planets of the sun. The Earth has no capability, which is a part of... Uh, one solar system a part of many and one galaxy a part of many and it's, there's just like this cosmic gigantic choreography that goes on and so we discovered that it is the sun everything revolves around lives completely this our lives do not work properly if we put self at the center if we think that the world revolves around us and if we think that other people's lives revolve around our needs and wants and desires, if we make ourselves the center of our own little universe, even if God is one of you, I didn't design plan to be around you, life will not be big enough to keep everything in orbit. And so I hear people say, well, you know, God has a plan for my life. God has a plan. I don't understand what that plan is. What is God's plan for my life? I, I want to know what God's plan is. Well, the fact is... Um, our lives actually exist to fit into God's plan. And so I want you to understand today exactly what God's plan is. Because your life, your life is to orbit around him. He is to be the center, right? He is to be the one who uh, exists, and then your life fits into his existence. And God has structured you in such a way around you. you. do play in your role, and you do play a part. Your family members, the lives of your neighbors, co-workers, people you go to school with, whoever it might be. And so the reason God has blessed us with salvation is so that his glory might be made known among all the nations. Right? With the task of taking the gospel to the world, Jesus wandered the streets of Israel and, uh, and the byways looking for a few men. Jesus would intentionally shun titles. 
He would shun labels and platitudes and popularity in his plan to turn the course of history upside down. And the way that he was going to do that was he was going to surround himself with 12 individuals with whom he would pour himself into. He would pour his life into them, and they would be with him, and he would be with them, and they would, they would be equipped by Jesus himself to think like he thought, to love like he loved, to see what has he saw, to teach as he did, and to serve as he did. And all he needed to revolutionize the world was a few good men. And so in John 17, 4, this is on your outline, this This is what Jesus prayed prior to his crucifixion. It was his priestly prayer back to the Father. And he says, Jesus says, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then Jesus summarizes his work on earth. Not by reliving the sermons that he preached. Not by, um, you know talking about the amazing miracles that he performed where he gave sight to the blind or unstopped ears or fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. And he, he didn't talk about that. Instead, he repeatedly talked about this small group of men that God gave him out of the world. And they were the work that God had given him to do. So Jesus poured himself into these individuals, although he did those other things, preaching great sermons, healing people, uh, teaching, proclaiming, all of those things. His great work was to pour himself into these men. He invested and staked everything on his relationship with them. And so he knew that he was going to the cross, and he went to the cross. He died for our sins. He came up out of the grave. And then when he gathered those men back together, when he gathered them back together, and he said to them, okay, guys, I've invested everything in you. Now, before I ascend back into heaven, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But I've commanded you, and I them in the name of the Father and Son like me. And so Jesus is his mega strategy for the world is to make disciples. And you and I exist to fit, to have some kind of inordinate skill or unusual abilities to make disciples. According to Jesus, people are God's method for winning the world to himself. And people who have been radically transformed by Jesus... Rather than just wanting to sit on the sidelines and to, you know, to delve it out to the professionals and say, hey, you guys do that and and we'll just do our thing. No, God has called us to collectively together as the body of Christ so that you and I can pool together our spiritual gifts, talents, and abilities and finances so that we can be a part of God's plan in making disciples in the world in which we live. Starting in our own personal Jerusalem, our own Judea, our own Samaria, and stretching out all across the world. And so it's kind of like marriage. You know, it's not about hiring perfect. It's not having the right life. It's not about, it is about being the right people. And, and like in marriage, marriage is not about marrying the right person. Marriage is all about being the right person. So it is beloved us. We, we are called out of, dwelt us with this Holy Spirit. We are literally hosting his presence so that we can be engaged in the process of making disciples of Jesus Christ. No longer are the days where you throwing open the doors of your church and say, you all come. Life, You are to be engaged in the hearts and the lives of people. So what I want to do today is just talk about the pattern of our mission. Because as you look at Acts chapter 13 and 14, you're going to see this pattern Happen over and over again. Paul and Barnabas have been called out 
and John Mark on the first missionary journey. They're going to go from different cities, and they're going to be doing what it is I'm going to talk about this morning. And um, you're going to see a very distinct pattern in every city they enter into. Midway through this process, John Mark bails on them and, uh, because he got stuck in one of the processes. And, and, but, but Paul and Barnabas continued on. So I'm not, we don't have time to go through every city in Acts chapter 13 and 14. I'm going to lay out the pattern for you, and we'll look at one city because this is the same pattern you're going to find throughout those chapters and then kind of draw a conclusion what this means for us. So if we are going to be a disciple-making church, that's our mission. Top of your Jesus Christ, right, is the power of God unto salvation. Sozo, the power to save, heal, and deliver. And we see that all the time as you bring to bear the gospel of Jesus upon the lives of people, Jesus makes a difference. And Jesus sets people. And Jesus heals people, whether that have been erected in their thought processes that keep them behaving in ways and patterns that are self-destructive. Why? Because God had a design, and we chose to live outside of that design. God calls that sin, and when we choose to sin, it always leads to brokenness, and in the midst of our brokenness, we develop coping mechanisms to deal with our brokenness and only makes it worse. And the answer and the solution to being free from our brokenness is the gospel of Christ coming to bear upon our thought patterns because as you think, so goes your life. And so this is our message, the gospel of Christ. What is God's method? His method is that we come and we gather. And we gather for the purpose of being equipped. And we gather for the purpose of growing so that we can go. As we are going, we are in the process. We are engaged in God's God's dealing with the world around us and the lives and the people that we come across every single day. So here's the pattern of the mission that you're going to find. Number one is the opportunity, the opportunity to communicate. The question is, are you going, according to Jesus, sharing the gospel with people around you as God gives you opportunity? It's not that you want to be rude and crude about it. It's not that you're shoving something down people's throats. I'm simply saying that if you make it a part of your life and a pattern of your life to every day ask the Holy Spirit open up your eyes and your ears to the needs of those around you, I can ask the Holy Spirit to offer up to you those individuals who need it because that's what he wants to deliver to them, and he's always looking for someone who will cooperate with him in that process. So if, if I keep in tune with the Spirit and walk with the Spirit, then I am engaging when the Spirit, you know, just kind of either speaks to me or opens the door. And it may not happen for you every day. You're open and available to that. And so this starts, again, in our families. It starts with our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends. There are some things that God wants to say to people about his son, right? Because Jesus is the answer. Do you believe Jesus is the answer to the world's problem? We can't. Right? You believe that? Okay, if we're going to believe it, speak to God's truth. We cannot witness that. With that, there are some people who may be very open and receptive to what you have to say. But there are other people who are going to give you pushback. And so that's the second word in the pattern. It is the word opposition. Not everyone is happy to hear about Jesus. Listen, people will talk with you all day long about a generic into the conversation. They'll talk to you all day long about spirituals to take on uh, a, a new venue, and all of a sudden people begin to react in different ways. Um, so 
opposition. You can't beat it. You can't stop it. I can assure you it's going to come. And a lot of people, the lot of people, the reason why you don't speak the gospel to others is because you in your heart, you're a people pleaser. You don't want to bring opposition into the relationship. You don't want to take that chance with your coworker. You don't want to take that chance with your neighbor, and therefore you just don't say anything. Listen, they can look at me and say, well, man, that's a really nice guy. That's a really nice guy. That, that's a really good person. Listen, God, we ought to be nice people. We ought to be good people, but that's not God's calling on our lives. God didn't save us just to make us nice people. He saved us to be disciples who make disciples. And so, therefore, we have to open our mouths and communicate the gospel. And if you do that, there are going to be people who give you pushback in opposition, I can assure you. So if you live in your life to be a people pleaser, then you probably won't open up your mouth. But if you realize that the truth of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then why would I not open my mouth? If I saw somebody who was dying of cancer and I had the remedy, would I not go and share that with them? Well, of course we would. We'd say, well, of course we would do that. They would happy, be happy to receive that. But if I go and share the gospel, they not be, may not be quite so thrilled about what that means. You're not responsible for their response. You are responsible to get the message out. Again, it doesn't have to be in an abrasive abusive kind of way. Don't act like an idiot when you're sharing the gospel, okay? You don't in a very practical way. All right, here's the third thing. If I'm running into opposition, then I have to persevere, right? Because the moment opposition hits me, am I going to stop or am I going to persevere and continue on? Every single city that Paul and Barnabas about into, as they went into the synagogues, pushed back, all right? People were not thrilled about hearing that, especially the Jews, And they constantly were opposing them. And it could have been for Paul and Barnabas to say, you know what? I guess people just don't seem to be doing any good. People aren't receptive. And push, I will just keep my mouth shut because it doesn't seem to be doing any good. But as they persevered and pushed forward and sharing the gospel, all of a sudden people did begin to listen. People did begin to respond. And as a result of it, here's the fourth thing, is fruit bearing. And that is people were giving their life to Jesus. It's amazing, the more you share your faith, the more people you see to come to Christ as opposed to not sharing your faith and seeing nobody come to Christ, right? It's the same way in praying for people. It's fruit bearing. And so we are to be teachers because immediately that's what, that's what they would do. They would teach them. They would, they'd start discipling them. And Paul would say, I'm coming in to lay the foundation of the church. I'm not getting out here to build on another, another man's foundation. I'm going to lay the foundation. We're going to help start getting them discipled. And then we'll let God bring in the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists and build on the foundation that we have laid. And so that's like a, like a church planter. And, and so... That's what they did. They began teaching. And it's very important because when we talk about teaching people, as Jesus said, teach them all that I observed, we often, our minds immediately go back to a classroom setting because that's the way we learned, right? All through school, you were sent to school, you sat in a classroom all day long, and you learned what the teacher was teaching you, and periodically you would have to take a test, an examination, to find out whether or not 
what you were learning was actually sticking, and then you finally get out of high school, and maybe you go to college, and you're prepping for a job, and you finally, you know, you get your degree, and you get that job, and I'm, I'm gonna, I can assure you, what you learned in school is going to be helpful, but where you're really going to hone your craft and your job is on the job, right? Not in a classroom setting, actually doing the job. Well, the same thing is true in discipleship. It's not about, hey, uh, Here's a person gave their life to Christ. Man, I don't know how to pray. Could you teach me how to pray? Well, yeah. Hey, no. The more effective way as a disciple maker would be for me to say, well, let me show you how I pray. Let me show you the things that I do. Now, this, you don't have to do it my way. You want to teach this person how one way of many ways, but that you and pray, right? Pray. That's how you learn how to pray. It's not in a classroom setting. Or they say, well, I want to learn how to study the Bible. It's not about just shoving them into a classroom, but it is to do what? It is to engage them and say, well, I'll tell you what. How about we sit down together and study the Gospel of John? I'll show you how I approach. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just getting started in, this, in pastoring. Could you teach me how to do sermon preparation? Well, I, I could have thrown a book at him and said, you know, read this book. It'll tell you all about it. I just approaches, but this is how I approach sermon preparation. And so whether it is about, you know, spiritual disciplines or even if it's about things that we, we deal with been deeply hurt by somebody. For example, what hurt throughout life? All of us, right? We all encounter hurt from people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Now, I could say, well, you know what? Here's a great book to read. God said on hurt. Now, I may give them some default. Our natural default is if I get hurt, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to stew and I'm going to review it and I'm going to rehearse it and I'm going to justify my, now my, that hurt never stays hurt. It turns into X, your thought processes and nothing good comes out of that. That's why the Bible warns us, let no root of bitterness spring up in you. And so I would say, well, you know what? Here's the process that the Bible tells us to go through in order to deal with our hurt or if we have hurt somebody else. Would that be far more effective in making it a church so that they learn together how to navigate through these things in life. When you get together in community and you pray and you study God's word and you find them rather than shoving them under the carpet and you actually deal with these issues and you walk through that with a community of believers, I'm telling you, it is absolutely life-changing, is it not? This raises the bar of our own Christianity. In order to teach someone how to pray, I better know how to pray. If I'm going to teach somebody how to study God's word, it would be things. So when we take responsibility for helping others to grow in Christ, it automatically ramps up our relationship with Jesus to a new level. God's word. The question is, are you a receiver or a reproducer of God's word? A receiver only or a reproducer? I want to, I want to leave you with a new mindset. Or you listen to God's word, whether somebody, whatever it might be. You don't want to just receive information. You want to become a reproducer. For example, um, next uh, spring, I've been invited to go to Ethiopia. Who are young in the faith, who have no seminary training, no, very little education. Because right now, um, they are seeing people by the hundreds of thousands coming to faith in Christ. In Ethiopia, church preached revival before. 
Uh, goes there every year, has for years. He says, I've never seen an outpouring of God like is going on there today. He says, I don't care where you go. He said, there's a minimum of 2,000 people giving their life to Christ. The churches, are, they can't even keep up with the growth. And so I'd like you to come and help train pastors. Well, here's what I can assure you, because I've done that in Russia. I've done it in Korea. Here's what's going to happen. I'll, I'll probably have two or 300 pastors. I'll start sharing out of God's word. And, and they're going to look at me the first time, and I'll, I won't see their eyes after that. And the reason is, they're not going to be looking at me, it's because they're going to be, they're going to be writing down everything I say. They, they want to get all the notes. And at the end of the lecture, they'll look up and say, now, we need to take this back and translate it into our own language so that we can teach our people what you've just taught me. You see, that's a reproducer. In other words, I have, I've, I've, I've taken in the word of God, not just to hear it, not just to receive it for myself, but for the purpose of receiving it for myself, yes, but for the purpose of going a step further, and that is reproducing what I've learned into the life of somebody else. You, 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 you kind of get the picture? That was Paul and Barnabas. That's what they desired to do. They wanted to, they wanted to bear fruit in the lives of other people, and therefore, they didn't just want to lead them to Christ and then, you know, send them to classrooms. They wanted to say, listen, God, let, pray with us. Uh, let's show you how we study God's Word. Let's get some foundational things under your belt, and uh, because we want you to not only change your life, but we want you to teach somebody else what you've learned so that you are reproducing yourself in the lives of somebody else. That's what a disciple does. A disciple is a learner for the purpose of not just gaining information, but for the purpose of reproducing yourself in the life of someone else. Disciples who actually make disciples. And so, uh, yeah, if you, you have a, a desire to learn God's word, look, we have a default self-centered mindset, and we're always asking, what can I get out of this? I just want you to change your thought process and say, hey, how can I listen to God's word, and how can I get equipped to teach this to others? What I'm learning, let it filter through my life so that I can bring that to bear in the hearts and the lives of others. And so disciple-making can take place multiple different places at different times all throughout the week. Here's number uh, Five and, and all of this, the purpose of all of this, you know, I thank God for your careers and all the things that you do, and, and you need to know that, that where God has placed you is your mission field, right? So where you work, where you live, that's your mission field, and because what? All of this is to bring glory to God, not to ourselves, because when you and I share the gospel, when we persevere in spite of opposition and we continue to share and we pour ourselves into the lives of other people and they kind of get it and they start, they start growing in their faith in Christ and then they start reproducing themselves into somebody else, uh, that is fruit bearing and that fruit bearing is, it brings ultimate glory to the Father because really it is all about the Father. It's not about us. When I do persevere... Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Catch that. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Who do we belong to? We belong to the Father. And so sometimes our assumption is that the Father saved us because it's all about us. In fact, I had somebody tell say that just uh, a, a week ago. Well, no, it's, it's all about me. That's why God saved me. No, eh. 
Uh, I, I, don't, I hate to burst your bubble, but when you get to heaven, you're not the one sitting on the throne up there. And I don't think anybody's going to be bound down worshiping you. But Jesus is at the center, and he's the center of it all. And so we, we conceive God as this great divine assistant, a supernatural butler, if we're not careful, who comes to study us and to help us and to get our best you have. And here's, I, I, I'd fail to notice this theme, and here's the, that's very obvious. Let me repeat that. God's glory, not man, is the underlying foundation of God's work. Why did God create the glory of God? To bring glory to himself. Salvation to and through the nation of Israel. To bring glory to himself. He says, God saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. For his name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I, res I restrain it to you. For my sake, for my sake, I do it. Why did God choose to save us? To bring himself glory, right? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God want us, to, want us doing with our lives right now? He wants us to bring him glory. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. Now, <laughs> Is God's insistence on being at the center of it all, is that like some kind of egotistical thing? Like, man, I've got to be the center otherwise, you know? Uh, is that what it's all about? I want you to consider this. If God really is the source of all life, the source of all goodness, and the source of everything, love, whatever it is, don't you think it would be, the, it would be unloving to not be at the center because if I'm at the center of life, if I'm at the center of goodness, and I'm at the center of love, I can assure you I will fail you miserably. I, would, I couldn't even live up to my own standards, let alone trying to live up to what you may set upon me. And so it goes back to Copernicus. It says the sun has to be the center of the solar system in order for the planets to stay in order. Just like it would be unloving for God to allow us to be the center when he is the source of everything we need, you need in your life. So why not make him the center? Just as creation cannot thrive unless the source of goodness, love, and life, he put Adam and Eve himself. And so, and so who was the center, right? God was the center. God was the one coming into that garden and meeting with them. He created everything for that that, that creation, but God was still at to displace God from the center of their life and made him nothing but an orbiting planet around their own self-existence, everything fell apart. And so sin came into existence and hurt and pain and greed and all the other things that result as the fallout. And so we translate this into our prayer lives. Have you ever really listened to yourself pray? Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, I want, I want. God, make every, everybody behave the way I want them to behave so that I can be comfortable and happy. Um, you know, God, pay them back for what they said to me, for what they did to me. Work out the situation so it's easier for me. And if God doesn't immediately come through, we become irate with God, right? We become irate. And if we allow our irateness to get out of control, then we're like, you know, I'm going to pay God. I'm going to stop reading the Bible, and I'm just going to stop praying. That'll show him. And so we hijack the glory of God and make it about us, man.
Are you with me? Heaven says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are your pleasures forevermore. And so my point is simply this. Uh, kingdom. Jesus is our Savior. He is the Lord of our lives. He didn't come just as Savior to be forgiving us of our sins, but he is to be Lord of our lives. As Savior, we're always called upon to receive him as Lord. It is two sides of the same coin. Because if I refuse to bow my knee to the lordship of Jesus, what's going to happen to me is what Jesus described in the parable of the sower. And then I start questioning, well, God doesn't love me, and God doesn't care about me. And we start saying all these things. Oh, yes, he does. I mean, look at Job. Job was a man who was good. He was righteous. He prayed every day for his family. He worshiped God, and God held him up before the evil one and said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And so really the backstory of the entire book of Job is this. If God sees you as someone who is spiritually strong, listen, God is going to allow you. He's not going to cause He's going to allow you to go through moments of pain because it's through your pain that God and we don't want to go through it, and we don't like to go through it, but that's, that's how God operates. Because he is purifying us so that he roots out of us our self-centeredness, the lordship of Jesus. We begin to develop the mind of Christ and the character of Christ. And, and as we turn to us, that character, we begin to live the life, is the only thing that has eternal value here on this earth. And the only thing that has eternal value are people. Everything else goes away. Everything else, and consider you like you, I continue to struggle with that. Then life becomes all about what? What I can acquire, and how much happiness I can have, and how comfortable my life can be, and, and all these. Listen, we all desire those things, and God desires to give those in us to be only things, God makers. Now, let's look at, at the first city they come to, all right? Acts chapter 13. In the church of Antioch, you're going to see a loose pattern here. There were prophets and teachers who had been brought up with Herod of the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, notice, notice when the Holy Spirit spoke. As they are worshiping, as they are fasting. Why? Because they want to hear from the Spirit. Right? And so sometimes that's the only way you can hear. Set apart from me. But they placed their hands on them and sent them out. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. So there's the first, all right? And so where did they proclaim it? In the Jewish synagogues, John was with them as their helper. And so whenever Paul went into a new city, he would go to his own people first, which would be the Jewish synagogue. Now, the gospel that he's going to give those who are Jewish would be different than if the, the person was a Gentile. Here's why. It's because what he wanted to prove to the Jews was that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, whom that's the forgiveness of our sins, so that God can take a life that is dead and bring it back to life. And so with the Gentiles, you know, it's, it's, it's a little different. Uh, my, uh, my point is, simple gospel with some you necessarily have a cookie-cutter thing. Let the Spirit guide that because every person you meet that God offers opportunity might be a little different, although there are common elements that certainly you want to include in the gospel. They have 30, might be. This may you have a person that you'll never see again in your lifetime. It might be a person that you see occasionally or somebody you see every week. And so you have to... Just as a historical event, people do not understand the significance of that event unless somebody came to Papa and to them. 
and so a sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, don't get wrapped up with the name Jesus there. Jesus was a very common name that day and time. It was just said of James and John, you are the sons of thunder, because he kind of labeled their personality. Paul's going to make a play on this word here in a minute. Who was an attendant to the proconsul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elmaeus, uh, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, some initial, uh, and tried to turn the proconsul. Um, and so, you know, and also interesting, uh, he calls the pro, usually there's not a, a, like a label on somebody. He calls it a very so-called Paul, and by the way, this is his name change from here on out through the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking straight at Elamus, and he said, are full of all kinds of deceit of the devil, and never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see, see the sun, immediately meet him by his hand. Now, that's a powerful Prophetic word, right? Um, don't try that at home. Notice what it says. When the proconsul saw war, well, if I just seen that happen, I'd believe too, right? I was like, uh, wow. And notice how Paul played on that word. He says, you, you claim to be the son of Jesus, but really you're the son of the devil. And, and he's, a, he's a stumbling block. And so it doesn't seem... Uh, and so let me touch on the stumbling block, and we'll wrap this up. Um, because what happened? So look at this. So opposition, Paul could have said, you know what? Every time I walk into a synagogue, I'm getting opposition. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't care what happens to them. Uh, they've had opportunity to hear the gospel. They don't want it. just like the apostles uh, earlier in the book of Acts. And as a result of his perseverance, this proconsul comes to faith in Christ Paul bearing fruit, which ultimately brings glory to God. You'll see the same pattern all throughout both chapters. So let me just touch on one thing in closing and then wrap up a, a um, kind of an application for us. And that is, here's the stumbling block for Jews, Gentiles in his day and time and for people in our day and time. Here it is. It's the gospel, right? Because in people's minds, it does not seem fair. It does not seem fair that people are not going to heaven simply because they've never accepted Jesus. For in their mindset, that is absolutely not fair. That is narrow-mindedness. That is hypocritical. That is being judgmental. It doesn't seem fair that God, for God to choose this one arbitrary characteristic to pass over all the other people who are basically morally good. And like, you know, it's like, ha-ha, uh, you don't know the password, you're not getting into heaven. You know, when I was a kid, we built a fort, you know, and so we wanted to keep the girls out, so we had a password, right? Because as we got uh, teenagers, you know, they didn't know the password, wanted them to come in, right? So, yeah. Here's what, please understand, in Rome at this time, in which the gospel is going out, is the same as it is now. Rome was a, a nation of pluralism. Rome had conquered the world and all the peoples they had conquered. Guess what they brought into Rome? They brought their own gods. But the Romans didn't care if you brought your own gods into the world. They believed there was enough room for everybody to have their gods. 
So whatever God you worship, that was fine with them. Whatever you thought got you to heaven, that was fine with them. That's the kind of society we live in in our day and time. It's pluralistic. Yeah, you got your Jesus, fine and well. Just don't tell me I have to have your Jesus. I've got my, you know, I've, I've got my view of God, and I've got my way of getting to heaven. And, and so don't, don't tell me that there's only one way. And so the only thing that Rome had a rule about is the fact that you could not proclaim that your God was the only God. And so in Rome, they built a huge structure, the Pantheon, which was representative of all the unknown gods. My wife and I toured that last year, and on top of it, there was a statue of Caesar. And so basically what they were saying is, you need to understand that Caesar is the God of the universe. You can worship whatever you want. You can choose however, whatever avenue you've got in order to enter, enter into heaven. We really don't care as so long as you don't say that your God is superior to all the other gods. This was the pushback. This is the pushback that the Jews gave to uh, Paul and Silas and everyone else who was sharing the gospel. You cannot say that Jesus is the Messiah. You can't say that Jesus is the only way, even though he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, that no one will come into the Father by me. That is too narrow-minded, and it does not fit our pluralistic society or mindset. And so, but for Rome, they didn't have a problem. Religion is just a matter of personal preference which assumes that all religions are saying the same things and teaching the same things, and that is absolutely false. We have not been given multiple messages. We have been given one message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation, the power to save, the power to heal, and the power to deliver. That is our, our message all other religions say, you know, love people, do good, be good, uh, whatever's up to you. You know, if you want to believe in Jesus, Allah, Buddha, a gigantic fester in the sky, I, I know must be saved, not on the basis of their goodness. If there was ever an example of that, it's in the book of Acts chapter 10. Remember Cornelius? The Bible says that he was a good man. He was a God-fearing man. He was a Gentile who individual. But when Peter showed up on the way, he did not come with the message, hey, Cornelius, God has sent me to see you by way of a vision. You have been such a good individual, a God-fearing individual, came with the power of the gospel. And when he shared the power of the gospel, Cornelius responded to the gospel, and it was on the basis of the gospel that he entered into heaven. That is true for our world. And trust me, if you are opposed, the question simply is, are we going to give up? Are we going to back down and back away? Or are we going to continue on? Here's our application in closing. Number one, I can choose, and it is a choice, you must choose to speak about your faith. Uh, that when you and I stand before Jesus, it will be an item on his agenda as to whether or not we were faithful in doing that. Number two, no, it's going to happen. All right? I have some family members who look at don't agree with it. They don't agree with it at all. But I am not rude to them. I, I am not uh, you know, Christ and pray that one day God will soften and open their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what. Because in your perseverance, you're ultimately going to bear fruit which will... for um, 
God, just for the individuals. Because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. I thank you for the testimony of Paul and Barnabas and so many other who were just lay people in the church, the gospel across the Western nations that reached eventually to America, that those whom you used in a church that was near me into the hearts and lives of those whom you used to tell me about Jesus. And my life has never been the same since. And I pray, God, that for what has been done for me, I could do for others. And I pray that for all of us. Lord, you know our heart. You know the pushback that we may receive. God, but God, you just hold uh, bitter. We don't want to become angry and resentful toward people. We don't want to become judgmental that the gospel will reach their hardened hearts and soften them and make them mold in their life. Father, may we be fruit bearers. May we bear the fruit of your character. May we bear the fruit of converts because and to disciple them. Oh God, I pray that you will raise up disciple makers. People out into the Lord of the harvest to send the harvesters out there. God, you selected that we might ultimately bring glory to you, Father. As we do the hard work and we persevere to the end, Whatever time we have here on earth, but we will speak up and we will, that we will not shut for the power of the gospel because we know what it can do in the hearts and lives of people. Father, we believe that Jesus is the only answer to this world's problems. And so we, may we be light, may we be salt, may we continue to proclaim the glory of the gospel as you give us opportunity. And may we, Father, be faithful and looking for those opportunities. With your head bowed and maybe you've never received Jesus into your life. Let me tell you the importance of Jesus. He is the only one who can bring ultimate joy. There's nothing in this world that has ever been created by God that can do that for you other than Jesus pure and noble and he wants you to experience that through a relationship to him to receive him as savior the one who can forgive your sins erase and righteous before God him proclaim Jesus is the one you need to come to to his lordship and he now you are able and I know right now that may not seem possible to live you Listen, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to live the Christian life. We can't do it on our own. We don't have the power source on our own. The Spirit is that source. And He will change your heart. He will change your desires. He will change your want to. He will change your life if you will allow Him. And to grow in a love relationship with Jesus that will forever alter the course of your life. But in the end, you, because you experience the grand hand in hand as a friend, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're ready to make that decision, you can open up your heart right here and now and just pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins. That you believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God who came into the world to die for you. And he rose on the third day and now you're just giving him your sins and saying, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you take up 
Will you take up um, your presence in my life? Will you fill me with your Holy Spirit? I'm surrendering myself to you to be Lord of my life. And I'm just asking you to help me to live the life that you're calling me to every single day of my life. If that's your prayer, then that's exactly what Jesus is doing for you. 